Book Six, Chapter Six of Camilla. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Velwest. Camilla, or A Picture of Youth by Fanny Burney. Book Six, Chapter Six. The Accomplished Monkeys. When Camilla descended, she found Sir Sedley Clarendell and General Kinsale in attendance, and saw, from the parlour window, Miss Dennell sauntering before the house with the newly made acquaintance of the preceding evening. The baronet, who was to drive Mrs. Albury, inquired if Camilla would not prefer also an open carriage. Mrs. Albury seconded the motion. Miss Dennell then, running to her father, exclaimed, "'Pray, Papa, let's take this lady I've been talking with in the coach with us. "'She's the good-naturest creature I ever knew.' "'Who is she? What's her name?' "'Oh, I don't know that, Papa, but I'll go and ask her.' "'Flying then back, "'Pray, ma'am,' she cried, "'what's your name? Because Papa wants to know.' "'Why, my dear, my name's Mitten, "'so you may think of me when you put on your gloves.' "'Papa, her name's Mitten,' cried Miss Dennells, "'scampering again to her father.' "'Well, and who is she?' "'Oh, la, I'm sure I can't tell, only she's a gentlewoman.' "'And how do you know that?' "'She told me so herself.' "'And where does she live?' "'Oh, just by, Papa, at that house you see there.' "'Oh, well, if she's a neighbour, that's enough. I've no more to say.' "'Oh, then I'll ask her,' cried Miss Dennell, jumping. "'Dear, I'm so glad. "'Twould have been so dull, only Papa and I. "'Unresolved, when I have a house of my own, "'I'll never go alone anywhere with Papa.' "'This being muttered, the invitation was made and accepted, "'and the parties set forward. "'The ride was perfectly pleasing to Camilla, "'now revived and cheerful. "'Sir Sedley was free from airs. "'Mrs. Albury drew them into conversation with one another, "'and none of them were glad when Mr. Dennell called, "'Stop, or you'll drive too far!' Camilla, who, supposing she was going as usual to the Pantiles, had got into the Phaeton without inquiry, and who, finding afterwards her mistake, concluded they were merely taking an airing, now observed she was advancing towards a crowd, and presently perceived a booth, and an immense sign hung out from it, exhibiting a man-monkey, or orangutan. Though excessively fluttered, she courageously and at once told Mrs. Albury she begged to be excused proceeding. Mrs. Albury, who had heard at the play the general objection of Mandelbert, though she had not attended to her answer, conjectured her reason for retreating, and laughed, but said she would not oppose her. Camilla then begged to wait in Mr. Dennell's carriage that she might keep no one else from the show. Sir Sedley, saying it would be an excruciatingly vulgar sight, proposed they should all return, but she pleaded strongly against breaking up the party, though, while she was handed out to go back to the coach, the Dennells and Mrs. Mitten had alighted, and it had driven off. The chagrin of Camilla was so palpable that Mrs. Albury herself agreed to resign the scheme, and Sir Sedley, who drew up to them, said he should rejoice in being delivered from it. But Miss Dennell, who was waiting without the booth for her aunt, was ready to cry at the thought of losing the sight, which Mrs. Mitten had assured her was extremely pretty, and, after some discussion, Camilla was reduced to beg she might do no mischief, and consent to make one. A more immediate distress now occurred to her. She heard Mr. Dennell call out to the man stationed at the entrance of the booth, "'What's to pay?' and recollected she had no money left." 
What your honor pleases, was the answer, but gentlefolks gives half a crown. I'm sure it's well worth it, said Mrs. Mitten, for it's one of the most curious things you ever saw. You can't give less, sir. And she passed nimbly by without paying at all, but added, I had a ticket the first day, and now I come every day for nothing if it don't rain, for one only need to pay at first. Mr. Dennell and his daughter followed, and Camilla was beginning a hesitating speech to Mrs. Albury, as that lady, not attending to her, said to Mr. Dennell, Well, frank me also, but take care what you pay. I'm not at all sure I shall ever return it. All I save goes to my ponies. And handed by the general, she crossed the barrier, not hearing the voice of her young friend, which was timidly beseeching her to stop. Camilla was now in extreme confusion. She put her hand into her pocket, took it out, felt again, and again brought forth the hand empty. The major who was before her and who watched her begged leave to settle with the boothkeeper, but Camilla, to whom he grew daily more irksome, again preferred a short obligation to the baronet, and blushingly asked if he would once more be her banker. Sir Sedley, by no means suspecting the necessity that urged this condescension, was surprised and delighted, and, almost without knowing it himself, became all that was attentive, obliging, and pleasing. Before they were seated, the young ensign, Mr. McDursey, issuing from a group of gentlemen, addressed himself to Camilla, though with an air that spoke him much discomposed and out of spirits. "'I hope you're all well, Miss Camilla Tyrold,' he cried, "'and have left all your family well, "'particularly the loveliest of your sex, "'that angel of beauty, the divine Miss Linmere.' "'Except the company present,' said Mrs. Arlberry. "'Always except the company present "'when you talk of beauty to women.' "'I would not accept even the company absent,' "'replied he with warmth.' but was interrupted from proceeding by what the master of the booth called his consort of musics, in which not less than twenty monkeys contributed their part, one dreadfully scraping a bow across the strings of a vile kit, another beating a drum, another with a fife, a fourth with a bagpipe, and the sixteen remainder striking together tongs, shovels, and pokers by way of marrow-bones and cleavers. Everybody stopped their ears, though no one could forbear laughing at their various contortions and horrible grimaces till the master of the booth, to keep them, he said, in tune, dealt about such fierce blows with a stick that they set up a general howling, which he called the vocal part of his consort, not more stunning to the ear than offensive to all humanity. The audience applauded by loud shouts, but Mrs. Arlberry, disgusted, rose to quit the booth. Camilla eagerly started up to second the motion, but her eyes still more expeditiously turned from the door upon encountering those of Edgar, who, having met the empty coach of Mr. Dunnell, had not been able to refrain from inquiring where its company had been deposited, nor, upon hearing it was at the accomplished monkeys, from hastening to the spot to satisfy himself if or not Camilla had been steady to her declaration. But he witnessed at once the propriety of his advice and its failure. 
the master of the booth could not endure to see the departure of the most brilliant part of his spectators, and made an harangue, promising the company at large if they would submit to postponing the consort in order to oblige his friends the quality, they should have it with the newest squalls in taste afterwards. The people laughed and clapped, and Mrs. Alberry sat down. In a few minutes, the performers were ready for a new exhibition. They were dressed up as soldiers, who, headed by a corporal, came forward to do their exercises. Mrs. Alberry, laughing, told the general as he was upon duty he should himself take the command. The general, a pleasant yet cool and sensible man, did not laugh less, but the ensign, more warm-tempered and wrong-headed, seeing a feather in a monkey's cap of the same color by chance as his own, fired with hasty indignation and rising, called out to the master of the booth, "What do you mean by this, sir? Do you mean to put an affront upon our corps?" The man, startled, was going most humbly to protest his innocence of any such design, but the laugh raised against the ensign amongst the audience gave him more courage, and he only simpered without speaking. What do you mean by grinning at me, sir? said McDursey. Do you want me to cane you? Cane me, cried the man, enraged. By what rights? McDursey easily put off all guard, was stepping over the benches with his cane uplifted, when his next neighbor, tightly holding him, said in a half whisper, If you'll take my advice, you'd a deal better provoke him to strike the first blow. McDursey far more irritated by this counsel than by the original offense, fiercely looked back, calling out, The first blow! What do you mean by that, sir? No offense, sir, answered the person who was no other than the slow and solemn Mr. Dubster, but only to give you a hint for your own good. For if you strike first, being in his own house, as one may say, he may take the law of you. The law, repeated the fiery ensign, the law was made for poltroons. A man of honor does not know what it means. If you talk at that rate, sir, said Dubster in a low voice, it may bring you into trouble. And who are you, sir, that take upon you the presumption to give me your opinion? Who am I, sir? I'm a gentleman, if you must needs know. A gentleman? Who made you so? Who made me so? Why, leave it off business. What would you have made me so? You may tell me if you are any better if you come to that. McDursey, of an ancient and respectable family, incensed past measure, was turning back upon Mr. Dubster when the general, taking him gently by the hand, begged he would recollect himself. "'That's very true, sir, very true, General,' cried he, profoundly bowing. "'What you say is very true. I have no right to put myself into a passion before my superior officer, unless he puts me into it himself, in which case tis his own fault. So I beg your pardon, General, with all my heart, and I'll go out of the booth without another half-syllable.' But if ever I detect any of those monkeys mocking us and wearing our feathers, when you ain't by, I shan't put up with it so mildly. I hope you'll excuse me, General. He then bowed to him again and begged pardon of all the ladies, 
but in quitting the booth contemptuously said to mr dubster as to you you little dirty fellow you ain't worth my notice little dirty fellow repeated mr dubster when he was gone how come you to think of that why i'm as clean as hands can make me come sir come said mrs mitten reaching over to him and stroking his arm don't be angry these things will happen sometimes in public companies but gentlemen should be above minding them he meant no harm i dare say oh as to that ma'am answered mr dubster proudly i don't much care if he did or not it's no odds to me only i don't know much what right he has to defame me i wonder who he thinks he is that he may break the peace for nothing i can't say i'm much a friend to such behavior treating people with so little ceremony i protest cried sir sedley to camilla tis your favorite swain from the north worker shumbly wafted on some zephyr of hope he has pursued you to tunbridge i flatter myself he has brought his last brand new cloth to claim your fair hand at the master of the ceremony's ball hush hush cried camilla in a low voice he will take you literally should he hear you mr dubster now perceiving her bowed low from the place where he stood and called out how do you do ma'am i ask pardon for not speaking to you before but i can't say as i see you camilla was forced to bow though she made no answer but he continued with his usual steadiness why that was but a unct morning we was together so long ma'am in my new summer house we was in fine jeopardy that's the truth of it pray how does the young gentleman do as took away our ladder what a delectable acquaintance cried sir sedley would you have the cruelty to keep such a treasure to yourself present me i supplicate oh i know you well enough sir said mr dubster who overheard him i see you at the hop at the white hart and i believe you know me pretty well too sir if i may take account by your staring not that i mind it in the least come come don't be touchy said mrs mitten can't you be good-natured and hold your tongue what signifies taking things amiss it only breeds ill words that's very sensibly observed upon said mr dennell i don't know when i've heard anything more sensibly said oh as to that i don't take it amiss in the least cried mr dubster if the gentleman's a mind to stare let him stare only i should like to know what it's for it's no better than child's play as one may say making one look foolish for nothing the orangutan was now announced and mrs alberry immediately left the booth accompanied by her party and speedily followed by edgar neither of the carriages were in waiting but they would not return to the booth sir sedley to whom standing was still rather inconvenient begged a cast in the carriage of a friend who was accidentally passing by MacDurcy, who joined them, said he had been considering what that fellow had proposed to him of taking the first blow, and found he could not put up with it, and, upon the appearance of Mr. Dubster, who, in quitting the booth, was preparing, with his usual leisurely solemnity, to approach Camilla, 
darted forward and, seizing him by the collar, exclaimed, "Retract, sir! Retract!" Mister Dubster stared at first without speech or opposition, but being released by the major, whom the general begged to interfere, he angrily said, "Pray, sir, what business have you to take hold of a body in such a manner as that?" It's an assault, sir, and so I can prove, and I'm glad of it. For now I can serve you as I did another gentleman once before, that I smarted out of a good ten pound out of his pocket for a knock he gave me for a mere nothing, just like this here pulling one by the collar. Nobody knows why. The major, endeavoring to quiet McDursey, advised him to despise so low a person. So I will, my dear friend," he returned. "As soon as ever I have given him the proper chastisement for his ignorance, but I must do that first. You won't take it ill, Major." I believe," cried Mister Dubster, holding up both his hands. "The lock of this was never heard of. Here's a gentleman, as he calls himself, ready to take away my life with his own good will." For nothing but giving him a little bit of advice. However, it's all one to me. The law is open to all, and if any one plays their tricks upon me, they shall pay for their fun. I'm none of your tame ones to put up with such a thing for nothing. I'm above that. I promise you. Don't talk, sir. Don't talk. Cried McDursey. It's a thing I can't bear from a mean person to be talked to. I had a hundred thousand times rather stand to be shot at. Not talk, sir. I should be glad to know what right you has to hinder me, provided I say nothing against the law. And as to being a mean person, it's more than you can prove, for I'm sure you don't know who I am nor nothing about me. I may be a lord for anything you know, though I don't pretend to say I am. But as to what people take me for, that behave so out of character, it's what I shan't trouble my head about. They may take me for a chimney sweeper, or they may take me for a duke, which they like. I shan't tell 'em whether I'm one or t'other, or whether I'm neither. And as to not talking, I shall hold my tongue when I think proper. Ask my pardon this instant, fellow," cried the ensign, whom the major, at the motion of the general, now caught by the arm and hurried from the spot. Mrs. Mitten, at the same moment, pulling away Mr. Dubster and notably expounding to him the advantages of patience and good humor. Mrs. Alberry, wearied both of this squabble and of waiting, took the arm of the general and said she would walk home. Miss Dennell. Lovingly held by Mrs. Mitten, with whom her father also assorted, and by whom Mr. Dubster was drawn on. Camilla alone had no immediate companion, as the major was occupied by the ensign. Edgar saw her disengaged. He trembled. He wavered. He wished the major back. He wished him still more at a distance, too remote ever to return. He thought he would instantly mount his horse and gallop towards Beech Park. But the horse was not ready, and Camilla was in sight. And in less than a minute, he found himself, scarce knowing how, at her side. Camilla felt a pleasure that.
bounded to her heart, though the late assertions of Mrs. Alberg prepared her to expect him. He knew not, however, what to say. He felt mortified and disappointed, and when he had uttered something scarce intelligible about the weather, he walked on in silence. Camilla, whose present train of thoughts had no discordant tendency, broke through this strangeness herself, and said, "'How frivolous I must appear to you! But indeed I was at the very door of the booth before I knew whither the party was going.' "'You did not hope, at least,' he cried, "'when you had entered it, deem me too rigid, too austere, that I thought the species both of company and of entertainment ill-calculated for a young lady?' "'Rigid? Austere?' replied she. "'I never thought you either, never, and if once again—' She stopped, embarrassed, ashamed. "'If once again what?' cried he in a tremulous voice. "'What would Miss Camilla say? Would she again? Is there yet? What would Miss Camilla say?' Camilla felt confounded, both with ideas of what he meant to allude to, and what construction he had put upon her half-finished sentence. Impatient, however, to clear that, "'If once more,' she cried, "'you could prevail with yourself now and then, from time to time, to give me an hint, an, an idea—' of what you think right. I will promise, if not a constant observance, at least a never-failing sense of your kindness." The revulsion in the heart, in the whole frame of Edgar, was almost too powerful for restraint. He panted for an immediate explanation of every past and every present difficulty, and a final avowal that she was either self-destined to the major, or that he had no rival to fear. But before he could make any answer, a sudden and violent shower broke up the conference and grouped the whole party under a large tree. This interruption, however, had no power upon their thoughts. Neither of them heard a word that was saying, each ruminated intently, though confusedly, upon what already was past. Yet where the wind precipitated the rain, Edgar stationed himself and held his hat to intercept its passage to Camilla and as her eye involuntarily was caught by the shower that patterned upon his head and shoulders, she insensibly pressed nearer to the trunk of the tree to afford more shelter to him from its branches. The rest of the party partook not of this taciturnity. Mr. Dubster, staring Mrs. Mitten full in the face, exclaimed, "'I think I ought to know you, ma'am, asking your pardon.' "'No matter for that.' cried she, turning with quickness to Camilla. "'Lord, miss, I don't know your name. How your poor hat is all, I don't know, how, as limp and as flimsy as if it had been in a wash-tub.' "'I just bethought me,' continued he, "'where it was we used to see one another, and all the whole manner of it. I've got it as clear in my head as if it was but yesterday. Don't you remember?' "'Can't you stand a little out there?' interrupted she. "'What signifies a man's old coat?' Don't you see how you let all the rain come upon this young lady? You should never think of yourself, but only of what you can do to be obliging. A very good rule, that. A very good one, indeed, said Mr. Dennell. I wish everybody would mind it. I'm as willing to mind it, I believe, said Mr. Dubster, as my neighbors. But as to being wet through, for mere complacence, I don't think it fair to expect such a thing of nobody. 
Besides, this is not such an old coat as you may think for. If you was to see what I wear at home, I promise you would not think so bad of it. I don't say it's my best. Who'd be fool then to wear it every day? However, I believe it's pretty nigh as good as that I had on the night I saw you at Mrs. Purdle's when, you know, one of your patents. Come, come, what's the man talking about? One person should not take all the conversation up so. Oh, dear miss, do tell me your name. I am so sorry for your hat. I can't but think of it. It looks as dingy. Why, now, you won't make me believe, said Mr. Dubster. You forgot how your patent broke and how I squeezed my finger under the iron and how I'd like to have lost the use of it. There would have been a fine job. And how Mrs. Purtle... I'm sure the shower's over, cried Mrs. Mitten. And if we stay here, we shall have all the droppings of the leaves upon us. Poor Miss Thingomy's hat is spoilt already. There's no need to make it worse. And how Mrs. Purtle, he continued, was obliged to lend you a pair of shoes and stockings because you was wet through your feet, and how they would not fit you and kept tumbling off, and how, when somebody came to fetch you in their own coach, you made us say you was taken ill because you was so daubed with mud and mire you was ashamed to shoe yourself. And how I can't think what you're talking of, said Mrs. Mitten. But come, let's you and I go a little way on to see if the rain's over. She then went some paces from the tree and said, What signifies running on so, Mr. Dubster, about things nobody knows anything of? It's tiring all the company to death. You should never talk about your own fingers and haphazards to genteel people. You should only talk about agreeable subjects, as I do. See how they all like me? That gentleman brought me to the monkeys in his own coach. As to that, answered he gravely, I did not mean in the least to say anything disagreeable, only I thought it odd you should not seem to know me again, considering Mrs. Purtle used— Why, you've no noose, Mr. Dubster. Mrs. Purtle's a very good sort of woman, and the best friend I have in the world, perhaps, at the bottom— but she ain't a sort of person to talk of before gentlefolks. You should talk to great people about their own affairs and what you can do to please them and find out how you can serve them. If you'd be treated genteelly by them, as I am, why, I go everywhere and see everything, and it costs me nothing. A friend, a lady of great fashion, took me one day to the monkeys and paid for me, and I've gone since, whenever I will, for nothing." "'Nobody treats me to nothing,' answered he in a melancholy voice. "'Whatever's the reason, except when I make friends with somebody that can let me in free sometimes, and I get a peep now and then at what goes forward that way.' "'But you are rich enough to pay for yourself now, Mr. Dubster. Good lack. If I had such a fortune as yours, I'd go all the world over, and thanks to nobody.' "'And how long would you be rich then, Mrs. Meaton?' Who to give you your money again when you'd spent it? I got mine hard enough. I shan't fool it away in a hurry. I promise you. I can't say I see that, Mr. Dubster, when two of your wives died so soon and left you so handsome. Why, yes, I don't say to the contrary of that. But then think of the time before, when I was prentice. The shower was now over, and the party proceeded as before. Edgar, uncertain, irresolute, walked on in silence, yet attentive, assiduous, 
even tenderly watchful to guide, guard, and assist his fair companion in her way. The name of the Major trembled perpetually upon his lips, but fear what might be the result of his inquiries stopped his speech till they approached the house, when he commanded voice to say, "'You permit, then, the renewal of my old privilege?' "'Permit? I wish for it!' They were now at the door. Edgar, not daring to speak again to Camilla, and not able to address anyone else, took his leave, enchanted that he was authorized once more to inform himself with openness of the state of her affairs and of her conduct. And Camilla, dwelling with delight upon the discernment of Mrs. Albury, blessed the happy penetration that had endowed her with courage to speak again to Edgar in terms of friendship and confidence. Mrs. Mitten, declaring she could not eat till she had seen what could be done for the hat of Miss Tyrold, accompanied her upstairs, took it off herself, wiped it, smoothed, and tried to new-arrange it, and at last, failing to succeed, insisted upon taking it home, to put it in order, and promised to return it in the morning time enough for the pantos. Camilla was much ashamed, but she had no means to buy another, and she had now lost her indifference to going abroad. She thought, therefore, this new acquaintance at least as useful as she was officious, and accepted her civility with thanks. End of chapter 6